everybody welcome back to the insightful thinkers podcast the underground railroad it wasn't underground nor a railroad Um, what it was was an intricate network of abolitionists philanthropists church leaders and and, and free african-americans who led tens of thousands of slaves to freedom in the early to mid 19th century so the Underground Railroad, it was it was this network of meeting places above ground just throughout the United States. Um, there were secret routes, there were passageways, and there were safe houses. And these were all things that were used by slaves in the U.S. to escape from slave masters who were holding them uh, in the southern states where there was slavery. And they were, they were getting moved to the northern states and to Canada. Once the slaves reached safe havens or at least relatively safe ones in the far northern areas of the united states or in canada they'd be given assistance to find lodging and work many as i've mentioned did continue all the way to canada and this was really the safest place because once they reached canada they could no longer legally be retrieved by their owners or seized by fugitive slave hunters so slaves on the run in from the deep south from slavery they were helped by by all of these philanthropists and church leaders and abolitionists despite the fugitive slave acts the fugitive slave acts were a pair of federal laws that allowed for the capture and return of runaway enslaved people within the territory of the united states so these laws allowed for people to to pursue these people and to capture them. And and it was a law that they had to be returned back into slavery if they were captured. Enacted by Congress in 1793, the first Fugitive Slave Act authorized local governments to seize and return escapees to their owners. And it imposed penalties on anyone who aided in their escape. So all of these people who were helping in the Underground Railroad were acting despite these these fugitive slave acts that were enacted in 1793 under these acts officials from free states were required to assist slaveholders or their agents who recaptured fugitives because citizens and governments of many free states ignored the law this is the only reason the underground railroad thrived so sometimes to shape history laws need to be ignored and this is what was happening with the underground railroad especially in the northern states they were ignoring these fugitive slave acts to uh, and going against them to help these these slaves they had a, a an obligation to if they saw a slave they had to uh, help return them back but they totally went against these laws but with heavy lobbying by southern politicians the compromise of 1850 was passed by congress this compromise compelled officials of free states to assist slave catchers because the law required only sparse documentation now to claim a person was a fugitive slave catchers also kidnapped free blacks especially children and sold them into slavery so with all of these escapees the south wanted to impose more laws and make it and get these slaves back even more easily and then increase the rate of capture of these slaves and and how much they would be brought back to uh, to their plantations and back to their owners so now only such very sparse documentation was required to prove these slaves were fugitives so people were just grabbing any not any black person, but essentially that's what certain people were doing and then 
bring, even if they were free from the North and bringing them into slavery, because it hardly required any documentation to say that, oh yeah, this person's a fugitive. That's what happened with Solomon Northrup. You may have heard of him from the, if you watch the 12 Years a Slave movie, that movie's based on his life or the book that, that he wrote. Uh, it, it was about him as a free black man being captured and sold into slavery. So this is part of the reason this was able to happen because of the compromise of 1850. Um, black people were just able to be captured and even free black people were, be, were able to be captured and sold into slavery. In what was a de facto bribe, judges were paid a higher fee, so $10, for a decision that confirmed a suspect was in, was enslaved uh, than for ruling one that the suspect was free. And they only got $5 for ruling that the suspect was free. So if Solomon Northrop was in in, in a court case, then the judge actually was paid off to affirm that, yes, he is a fugitive rather than he was paid $10 for this, whereas only five to say that he was uh, truly a free man. So the South was doing anything it could to, to prevent these runaways and to bring them back and to capture as many black people as they could into slavery. The most widely uh, assisted slaves to escape were, or, or the people who, assisted slaves the most were, uh, or I shouldn't say the most because in terms of the numbers, uh, a lot of Quakers actually saved thousands of, of, uh, of black people and assisted them along the underground railroad. But a big help were members of the free black community, such as Harriet Tubman and former slaves. Harriet Tubman was a former slave. Um, and as I mentioned, these, these abolitionists in the North and philanthropists and church leaders also helped as well. Estimates of the number of slaves who reached freedom vary greatly from 30,000 to 100,000 between the years of 1810 and 1850. But either way, tens of thousands of, of uh, slaves were helped escape through the Underground Railroad. So we're going to talk about how this works today. And um, we're going to start with the beginnings of the Underground Railroad. So we talked about how in 1793, there was uh, the act to limit uh, people helping, uh, helping slaves escape. Uh, so in, in 1793, um, again, so a provision in the 1793 act to limit slavery stated that an enslaved person who reached Upper Canada became free upon arrival. So as part of the 1793 uh, ruling that was passed through Congress. It did also state that if you reached Upper Canada, you were free upon arrival. So this is initially what spawned some slaves to start to escape. Slaves were obviously escaping before that, but in 1793, this provision that said, if you reach Upper Canada, you're free upon arrival. This encouraged some slaves in search of freedom to enter Canada first without help. And word that freedom could be heading Canada soon spread and people started to help facilitate their escape from slavery after this provision. But even before 1793, a system of runaways did certainly seem to exist. George Washington himself, um, owner of hundreds of slaves, complained in 1786 that one of his runaway slaves was aided by a society of Quakers formed to liberate one of his enslaved workers. So there were these escapees and Quakers seem to have some kind of a network going on even before 1793 where 
officially, if you reached Canada, you were free. Um, Quakers were among the earliest abolition groups and, and are considered the first organized group to actively help escaped enslaved people. Their influence may have been part of the reason why Pennsylvania, where many Quakers lived, was the first state to ban slavery. So the Quakers really had some of the biggest initial influences and throughout the course of the Underground Railroad in helping these slaves to freedom. In the early 1800s, Quaker abolitionist Isaac T. Hopper set up a network in Philadelphia that helped enslaved people on the run. At the same time, Quakers in North Carolina established abolitionist groups that laid the groundwork for routes and shelters for escapes. So the Quakers are really responsible for sh really shaping the Underground Railroad and developing the initial uh routes and the and the routes that slaves could take towards freedom two quakers levi coffin and his wife catherine are believed to have aided over 3,000 slaves escape levi is sometimes called the president of the underground railroad for this reason for reference harriet tubman she she helped free hundreds whereas I'm not, i don't want to compare this because what what these quakers levi coffin and and Catherine were doing wasn't as dangerous as what tubman was doing tubman was as a first of all as a black person which is way more dangerous she was going back into the plantations and bringing slaves right out firsthand she did she freed hundreds of slaves that way whereas these quakers they were a part of the network, so maybe they allowed slave. They were also conductors in the Underground Railroad. We'll talk about the terminology in a moment, but they they kind of let people stay at their homes or things like this and pointed them in the right, right direction. So perhaps not as courageous as Tubman, but the numbers they were able to help save were were astonishing. Nevertheless, the earliest mention of the Underground Railroad specifically came in 1831 when. An enslaved man, Tice Davids, escaped from Kentucky into Ohio, and his owner blamed an underground railroad for helping Davids to freedom. In 1839, so eight years later, a Washington newspaper reported an escaped enslaved man named Jim had revealed, under torture, uh, his plan to go north following an underground railroad to Boston. So the terminology was there in, in the 1830s vigilance committees as well created to protect and escaped slaves from bounty hunters in new york in 1835 and in philadelphia in 1838 soon expanded their activities to guide enslaved people on the run so by the 1840s the term underground railroad was part of the american vernacular so sometime in the 1830s the term started to emerge and that's where uh, we get the term today, but let's kind of dive in a little more about w what the terminology actually is and maybe and where Underground Railroad came from if it's not underground or a railroad. Railroad terminology and symbols were used to mask the covert activities of the network. It also helped to keep the public and the slaveholders in the dark a little bit. Um, so underground, like some, <laughs> some shady things, you don't really know what's going on, what kind of network is happening here. Uh, and that's one of the cool things I found about it and why I wanted to touch on it in this uh, Black History Month as our second installation. So uh, though neither underground nor a railroad, as I've mentioned, it was named so because its activities had to be carried out in secret using darkness or disguise. 
There's a specific quote from John Rankin. He says, it was called the Underground Railroad because they who took the passage on it disappeared from public view as if they had gone into the ground. After the fugitive slaves entered a depot on that road, no trace of them could be found. They were secretly passed from one depot to another until they arrived at a destination where they were able to remain free. It was known as a railroad, using rail terminology such as stations and conductors, because that was the transportation system in use at the time. So they <laughs> took the transportation system used in the time and they uh, kind of applied all of its terms to the workings of the Underground Railroad. So what are these code words that they would use? So homes and businesses that harbored runaway slaves were known as stations or depots, and they were run by station masters. Stations were in various cities and towns, and they were known as terminals. These places of temporary refuge could sometimes be identified by lit candles and windows or by strategically placed lanterns in the front yard. Those who helped escaping slaves in their journey were called conductors, like Harriet Tubman um, and the Quakers. They guided slaves along points in the Underground Railroad using various modes of transportation over land or by water. Underground Railroad's stockholders were the ones who contributed money or goods, and the terms passenger, cargo, package, and freight, they referred to the escaped slaves. So they had all these code words for every piece of the workings of the Underground Railroad. And we talked about how one of these code words was conductors. The conductors of the Underground Railroad, as I mentioned one of the best known is Harriet Tubman, a former slave who returned to slave states 19 times to bring back more than 300 slaves to freedom. This is why she's called the Moses of her people um, and, and why we will never forget her name. To reduce the risk of infiltration, many people associated with the Underground Railroad knew only their part of the operation and not the whole scheme. Conductors who transported fugitives from station to station sometimes pretended to be enslaved to first get back into a plantation and infiltrate it. Once a part of that plantation, the conductor would direct the runaway slaves to the north. Slaves traveled at night about 10 to 20 miles or 15 to 30 kilometers to each station. They rested and then a message was sent to the next station or the next home, wherever, wherever the slaves were to go, um, to let the slave master, or excuse me, the station master, they certainly didn't want to let the slave master know anything, to let the station master know that escapees were on their way. So there, I mean, there was that first step of infiltrating the plantation and then they told the slaves the plans. They said, at night, you go north, you go here about 30 miles ahead, 15 to 30 miles. You're going to reach this. You're going to sleep in the day. Next night, you take a run for it and keep going north again, another 15 to 30 kilometers and travel through this network to the north. Um, best integrated of the Underground Railroad systems was the Anti-Slavery League, centering its operations in Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania where the traffic uh, in the Underground Railroad assumed enormous proportions. Subsidized generously by abolitionists, the League could afford to shift its agents and cover the ground thoroughly. They could cover the whole network in these areas. So conductors, they, were, they could pose as school teachers, map makers, musicians, geologists, or any guys that would create a plausible opportunity for mingling with the southern population or examining the topography of the region. 
So any, this is how they were able to infiltrate the South. They would dress up as, oh, I'm, I'm just a map maker. I'm visiting the South. I'm trying to determine how the land goes in this place. Or I'm a geologist. I'm doing research down here. And this is how they could maybe infiltrate the plantation and, and whisper to the slaves, okay, you got to go north tonight. This is exactly where you got to go. And the slaves take that and, and they take it and run with that information in the night. So this is how they were able to infiltrate these plantations by pretending they were doing business in the south. Ohio, because of its strategic location and its many uh, Quakers and New England settlers, was the center of the greatest activity. Ohio, the strategic location, it's located right really on the Canada-U.S. border there. Um, there were 20 stations along the Ohio River with fifth, over 1,500 operators in the state. So it was plenty, uh, packed, chock full of, of uh, Underground Railroad operators who were helping these slaves. At Lake Erie, there was also a line of boats to Canada in operation. So they had a whole operation going right on the shore to take these slaves to Canada. Now, these things these operators were doing, these 1,500 operators in Ohio and all of these people, Harriet Tubman and the Quakers who were helping out, they must have faced some kind of dangers. And, and they did. But um, what's funny is that the Underground Railroad really wasn't so underground when you really look at it. Um, now, okay, well, let's first talk about some of the, the possible dangers. So if someone was convicted of helping fugitives to escape, they could be fined hundreds or even thousands of dollars, which was a tremendous amount for that time. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about more of the severe punishments in a moment. But what I really wanted to get at was how in areas where abolitionism was strong, especially in the North, this secret underground railroad really operated quite openly. So it wasn't like people were on the hunt for these operators and they were trying to take them down in the North too much. Um, in New York, the former slave Stephen Myers, the leader of the Underground Railroad in Albany, wrote openly about his work helping other slaves escape in his newspaper. <laughs> so everyone, it was available for everyone to see that he was helping slaves escape. A former slave in Syracuse, Jermaine Logan, announced himself in the local press as the city's agent and keeper of the Underground Railroad Depot and held donation parties to raise money for the Underground Railroad. So to get some more stockholders into the Underground Railroad who could contribute some, some funds. Newspapers at the same time uh, published statistics on the number of fugitives he helped. Vigilance committees that formed uh, within communities for the purpose of aiding runaways also openly advertised their meetings in many cases. The New York Vigilance Committee, or committee, excuse me, uh, publicly proclaimed its mission to receive with open arms the panting fugitive. So it was kind of common knowledge in some of these areas where abolitionism was common and it wasn't so underground, but it still had to be secretive enough because being caught in a slave state while aiding runaways was much more dangerous than in the North. Punishments included prison, whipping, or even hanging, assuming that the accused even made it to court alive instead of being dying at the hands of an outraged mob. White men caught helping slaves to escape received harsher punishments than white women, but both could expect jail time at the very least. In aiding over 3,000 slaves to freedom, Thomas Garrett, for instance, a Delaware Quaker, um, 
and a, and a leader in the underground railroad operations paid eight thousand dollars in fines that doesn't sound like a lot but in today's money that's over two hundred thousand dollars he paid but of course he had uh he is the pleasure and <laughs> his name is still being said clearly today of, of being one of the uh, great operators in the underground railroad so there was a, a great fine for white men the penalties they weren't white men and women. They weren't nearly as severe as for black men and women, of course, as, as it was during those times. Black conductors on the Underground Railroad faced the harshest punishments, do dozens of lashes with a whip or even burning and hanging. So it did need to remain underground enough to especially save a lot of people who were operators in the South and who were maybe along the front lines a little more and trying to infiltrate the plantations of the South because it was no joke uh, down there if, if you were caught helping slaves escape. What were some of the logistics for the actual slaves who were escaping? The routes that were traveled to get to freedom, they were called lines. So still going along with this underground, these underground railroad terms that they used. The network of routes went through 14 northern states and through Upper Canada and Lower Canada. For the YouTube viewers, perhaps I'll put uh, an image of kind of all the routes that were taken. It was a it was a very wide wide range the Underground Railroad operated through. Um, so Upper Upper Canada, for reference, is present day kind of southern Ontario, so we're like right above Ohio, and Lower Canada is present day kind of eastern part of Quebec. So present day Canada, it was a desirable destination or as a final destination because its long border gave many points of access and it was farther from slave catchers and beyond the reach of the United States Fugitive Slave Acts. As I mentioned, there was that 1793 act that said, once you step foot in Canada, you can't be pursued anymore. Um, Britain banned the institution of slavery in present-day Canada as well in 1833. So, of course, this is where they were trying to get these slaves because they were no longer slaves once they reached Canada. At the end of the line, it was known as heaven or the promised land. And this was the free land in Canada or the, or the northern states. So this is what the slaves were pursuing the whole time. The drinking gourd referenced the Big Dipper constellation, uh, which points to the North Star. So keep your eye on the North Star was what you may have heard in history class or whatever. And this truly was the watchword um, because by keeping their eye on, on that star in front of them, they knew they were heading north. That star always... Polaris, it always faces north. Um, it's part of the Little Dipper, and the Dipper, part of the Big Dipper, points directly to the North Star. So they looked at the Big Dipper, they aligned it with the North Star, and they knew let's we just gotta head that way. That assures us that we're getting closer and closer to freedom as we go. Slaves had to make the initial getaway from their owners, usually by night, as I mentioned. Many made the voyage by foot, some by wagons, carriages, on horses, or by train. Passengers also traveled by boats across lakes, seas, and rivers. They often rested during the day, and then the next night that came, they got instructions from their conductor at whatever station they were at, whatever home they were at, to this is where you got to go, these are the directions, follow it, and uh, wish you the best kind of thing, and they tra traversed the network. Most escapes were by individuals or by small groups, 
but occasionally there were mass escapes. Such was the case in what was known as the Pearl Incident. The Pearl Incident was the largest recorded nonviolent escape attempt by slaves in United States history. On April 15, 1848, 77 slaves attempted to escape Washington, D.C. by sailing away on a schooner called the Pearl. Their plan was to sail south on the Potomac River, then north up the Chesapeake Bay and Delaware River to the free state of New Jersey. Uh, this would have been about over 200 miles or about over 300 kilometers. The attempt was organized by both abolitionist whites and free blacks who expanded the plan to include many more enslaved people as the plan grew bigger and bigger and it became 77 people who were going to escape on this this boat the escapees unfortunately had their passage delayed by winds running against the ship then two days later they were captured on the chesapeake bay by an armed posse traveling by steamboat so this was the biggest mass escape non-violent 77 slaves attempted to escape of course there you may know and we may actually do this as we continue black history month we may do the nat turner saga i'm not sure yet because there are a lot of other topics i want to cover too but that would be like a violent escape of many slaves who were killing their slave masters in this case it was a non-violent escape but unfortunately it didn't go as planned but so usually the escapes were in smaller groups could even be one or two people the escapees um fleed using all manners of disguises as well. Men would put on women's clothes and women would dress as boys in some instances. Occasionally female slaves would cover their faces in, in mourning veils and covered their hands in gloves to get on the white only railway. So they might pretend to be the the wife of one of the underground railroad conductors not one of the train conduct the actual train conductors but one of the underground railroad conductors and they would get on the train the, the maybe it was a quaker he would bring this this black woman on as his wife and they would travel by train so there were all these disguises that were used special wagons as well were uh, were built with false bottoms to hold the runaways while farm produce or hay was spread above them. This is not <laughs> some fictional thing you might see in cartoons where they're under hay. This was actually happening. With, there was a false bottom in the wagon where slaves could go underneath. Um, railway passes, uh, either fake or real, were distributed and marked so they could be recognized by abolitionist train men. So even on the train, the, maybe the, let's say the original Quaker who pretended to be the slave's husband, he would give the, the, the slave a, uh, a pass. And this little pass would be recognized by the next train operator. If he was an abolitionist as well, they would say, oh, Jimmy, 30 miles north at this station, you show this pass to him that'll be a sign that he's got to take you to the next station. So look at how they were operating this railroad. Um, Slaves were even boxed up and sent to an express post office, which knew nothing of the human freight it was sending north. So sometimes not everyone was in on it, and they just boxed up a slave and sent him to the post office. One slave was known to have been shipped north in a casket with air holes in there. Unfortunately, this slave was found dead when the remains finally reached friends in the north. So there were all manners of how these slaves were escaping and uh, 30,000 to 100,000 did so incredibly. 
Occasionally, sheriffs and plantation owners would attempt to search the stations where slaves were being held. So there would be a little bit of combat brewing because they started to figure out the methods of the Underground Railroad. So they started to figure, okay, where can we go strategically to capture these slaves back? So they would they would go to all these different areas so they would gather at strategic points such as the bridge over the raritan river this is where four roads converged on jersey city the most important underground transfer center in the east so they kind of tried to uh stop the underground railroad at, at strategic points um and a combat even ensued sometimes this is directly from the journalist Henrietta Buckmaster in 1938. She says, The slave hunters watched all incoming barges and ferries, singling out the frightened faces of fugitives. But the ever-faithful conductors were present there too. Always it was nip and tuck between escape and recapture, often with broken heads and bullet wounds after the fracas was over. This really was the way of the Underground Railroad. It was an incredible operation, an intricate network. It wasn't underground. It wasn't a railroad, <laughs> but uh, it was it was it was just as amazing as the name sounds. Really, when you think about it, and um, they didn't they didn't let anyone stop them. They didn't let these slave catchers stop them at these these pinch points. They would they would fight through it. They would do all sorts of things to to get these slaves to freedom. Thank you for listening to this episode, everybody. Black History Month, second installment, two more to go. Hopefully you guys are enjoying them. I certainly am. This stuff is very interesting to me. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I tell you every time we're growing our community through word of mouth, and that is what we're doing. Um, so if you like this episode, just share it. Let one or two people know about it. You can also do all the digital things. You can rate, like, comment, subscribe. All of that is also helpful. It just helps us get discovered. Um, but whatever you do to support listening and watching is always plenty, you guys. I really appreciate uh, the consistent listeners, whether we're throwing Black History Month topics, whether we're throwing anything we you, you guys are you guys are tuning in i can't thank you enough uh, for listening to the insightful thinkers podcast everyone and as always um we'll be back next monday for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics take care everybody <laughs>